So Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. So I've got, I've got three more lessons planned for this uh, book, this one and then two more after this. Um, now next week, uh, we're not going to be in Ephesians because we'll, we will have our conference speakers here. Uh, one will be leading Sunday school, the other one will be preaching uh, next Sunday. So uh, we'll pick up again, uh, I, I believe, on the 18th. Uh, we will finish Ephesians before the, you know, by the time uh, we get through the end of February, Lord willing. Um, so just looking at Ephesians 6, starting in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with eye service as man-pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. All right, so, I mean, these are pretty self-explanatory, right? We could just go on to the next section. And, uh, <laughs> Now, I do have a few words to say on this. Um, it was interesting as I was looking at this and thinking about this, particularly the first part, I was thinking, okay, children obey, we'll go over it, but you know, for the most part, uh, our children are grown and they have children of their own. Um, and this is adult Sunday school, so we often, you know, it's like, well, you know, what kind of application can we draw this? How long do I want to draw this out? But we do have, actually have a young man here this morning, so uh, by the Lord's providence, we'll, we'll go over this. But uh, again, we are uh, in this part of Ephesians, the practical section. I mean, it's all practical. Let me, let me, let me, let me back that up. Uh, it's all practical. But when I say practical in this sense, I mean uh, the imperative part. This is the part where um, after laying out the theological foundations that he does in the first three chapters, Paul starts to apply these truths. What does it mean in your life? How does this play out in your life? What does it mean that you're chosen? What does it mean that you're being built up together into a temple unto the Lord? What does it mean that you have been made alive in Christ by grace through faith? unto good works. What does that mean? What does it look like? Uh, well, it looks like the worthy walk, which is what we've been looking at ever since chapter 4. The worthy walk. Walk worthy of the calling by which you were called. Uh, and then Paul just expands on that in chapters 4 and chapter 5. And now uh, what we see starting, what we looked at last week, starting in chapter 5, verse 22, is in a sense an expansion on an expansion. Uh, it's an expansion on this idea in verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Well, how does that look? Well, this is how it's going to look in the family. Now, again, these are uh, 
often called by uh, commentators and scholars as the household codes. The household codes. So you've got instructions to husbands and wives. You've got instructions to parents and children. You've got instructions to masters and slaves. And this, is, this would have been a, a typical first century household. You had husbands and wives with children and servants. Um, it would not have been unusual for a first century household. It would not have been unusual for a 15th century BC household. It would not have been unusual for a household in the days of Abraham or Job to have many servants, to have a husband and a wife, maybe in some cases many wives, uh, but uh, be that as it may, a husband, a wife, children, and servants. So what does submitting to one another in the fear of God look like? Well, last week we looked at the marriage, what Christian marriage is all about, and how uh, the, this idea of submitting to one another uh, looks like in the, uh, in the marriage. And it's not, an, it, it's not a symmetrical submitting, okay? It's an asymmetrical submitting. And by that I mean it doesn't look the same in one direction as it does in the other direction. That's because you have an authority structure that is built into a marriage that is reflected in creation, which is reflected in the economic uh, way that the Trinity works. You have the Father sending the Son into the world to do the work of the Father. It's not the other way around. You have the Spirit sent into the world by the Father and the Son to apply the work of redemption to the, those who have been chosen. It's not the other way around. Well, in the same way, you have wives submitting to their husbands as unto the Lord. You have the husband loving the wife. So you've got this authority and submission structure, but within that, you have a submission to the one in authority as unto the Lord, and you have in the authority position one who leads in a way that builds up and uh, tries to bring the best out of those who are under them. It is not one in which the authority is lorded over, and it's not one in which the submission is grudgingly given. So you have this uh, picture of marriage, and Paul then concludes that section by saying this is a great mystery. And he says it speaks of Christ and the church. So what earthly marriages are supposed to be are little pointers <laughs> that point to the relationship between Christ and his church. If you were to look at a Christian marriage, hopefully you would see some reflection of the relationship between Christ and the church. It's not going to be perfect, and we know that, because uh, what happens when you take a fallen man and a fallen woman and you unite them in the bond of marriage. You have two fallen people <laughs> in a one flesh union. Okay, so there's going to be strife. There's going to be struggle. There's going to be uh, give and take and there's going to be um, uh, arguments and such. But as we submit unto the Lord, as we lead and, and, and um, love our wives as Christ loved the church, and as the Spirit is sanctifying each member in that relationship, hopefully you see more and more of a reflection of that relationship between Christ and the church. Well, Paul now is just going to bring this out further now. Okay, he's talked about marriages. Now he's going to talk about parents and children. He's going to talk about servants and masters. Now, I'm going to say this at the outset, and we'll talk about it more when we get there. We don't do servants and masters anymore, all right? We, we, we don't do slavery anymore, um, at least 
uh, not the way that Americans have done slavery in the past, unfortunately. Um, and f I mean, the slavery in the past was unfortunate. I'm not saying it's unfortunate. We don't do that anymore. Uh, let me be clear about that. Um, and we need to get that out of our mind, okay? And I'm going to talk about it more when we get to it. We need to get the idea of American slavery out of our mind when we think about this, because what Paul is talking about here is not American chattel slavery. It is not man-stealing. It is not uh, looking at the servant or the slave as subhuman, right? And we'll get into that more. In fact, uh, oftentimes when you see study Bibles or commentaries talk about this, they apply it, they contextualize it into an employer-employee relationship, and that's fine. Um, I mean, that, that's a way to look at it, but um, we'll get to that more. But again, this is within the household. You would have had servants in a household, depending on how uh, wealthy uh, you were. But first, uh, we'll look at the children. So I've got four parts here. Um, children, you know, we're going to look at children, then parents, we're going to look at slaves and then masters. Uh, and the worthy walk is what we're going to see here is the worthy walk is seen in well-ordered, godly household relationships. The worthy walk as seen in well-ordered, godly household relationships. So first we're going to look at the children. Now it's interesting because in each section here, Paul spends more verses talking about the one in submission than he does the one in authority. It's three verses for the one in submission, for children and slaves. It's one verse for parents and masters. I don't know if that means anything. It's just what Paul did. <laughs> uh, but first, we see here, children, obey. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So that is the clear command here. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. The word there for children, technon, it's, uh, it applies to male and female children, so it's a neutered, gendered word in the Greek, meaning it can apply to either one, but it speaks of children, not infants, that's a different word. Not adults, that's a different word. We're talking like adolescents. We're talking probably between the age of three, four, five to about maybe 12 or so. Uh, adolescents, children, obey. The word for obey is uh, it's it's a it it literally just means to listen to hearken <laughs> to to give heed to um, to to hear under is uh, if you were to look at the word um, etymologically uh, it's different it's not the same word used to speak of wives wives don't obey they submit there's a different concept there children obey. So this is more of like in the line of, you know, you hear it's like when parents say jump, right? The children are to say how high, right? Um, so the clear command for children is to obey their parents. And the word there is just, it, it's a derivative of the Greek word to be. So someone who brings someone into be is a, a parent in this case. So your father and your mother obey your parents in the Lord. We're not talking about spiritual parents in the Lord. We're talking about that's the manner in which they are to obey. They are to obey as unto the Lord, in, in, in the Lord. Um, so just as wives are to submit to their husbands as unto Christ, uh, children are to obey their parents as unto the Lord or in the Lord. Be, or as one translation, translation puts it, 
it says, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. And I think that kind of gets the idea here, because you belong to the Lord. And Paul says, this is right. This is right. Uh, the word there uh, is uh, a word we use for righteousness or justice or um, that kind of idea, because it's proper, because it is fitting, because it is the right thing to do. It is acceptable. Um, we've been kind of going back and forth between uh, this and Colossians, uh, because there's a lot of parallels here between these two um, Books between Philippi, uh, between Ephesians and Colossians, and in Paul says almost the same exact thing in chapter three, verse twenty of Colossians. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well pleasing to the Lord. It is right. It is fitting. It is proper. It's pleasing to the Lord. Um, if you were to look at the Proverbs particularly the first nine chapters, uh, Proverbs 1, 8, chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1. It's amazing how it always begins at the beginning of each chapter. You have the father there saying, listen to me, my son, heed my wisdom, obey me and, 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 and live long. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, those early chapters are given in a sense of a father uh, imparting wisdom to his son. And he's like, listen to my words, my son. Why? Because I'm giving you the right way to live. I'm giving you the proper way to live. So avoid evil people. Avoid uh, sexual immorality. Avoid the, uh, the loose woman and so on and so forth. Avoid these things. Why? Because it is proper. And then in verse 2 and 3, Paul then quotes from the Ten Commandments. He quotes from the Decalogue. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. That's not part of the quote. Uh, and then he continues, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. So you got a quotation from Exodus 20, verse 12, Deuteronomy 5, 16. They say effectively the same thing. It is the fifth commandment. It is the first commandment in what they call the second table of the commandments. So where you have the first four commandments speak of our duty unto the Lord, the second six or the remaining six speak of our duty unto men. And it begins with obey your parents, honor your father and your mother, honor your father and your mother. And if you are familiar with our uh, catechism, and other catechisms, what they do is they expand on that. It's, it's, they, they don't just limit it to the parent-child relationship, but they, they expand it. It, it. It's sort of a, when they say honor your father and your mother, it is, it is sort of a, uh, a pointer to all relationships that we're in, whether, um, you know, again, husbands, wives, uh, citizen to the governing authorities. It is, in a sense, they expand on it and say, uh, you show honor to your parents, but you also show honor in every relationship in which you are either the, inf the, the, uh, the one in submission or the one in authority. In fact, the Westminster Larger Catechism spends, in my opinion, way too many questions <laughs> talking about this, but it really fleshes this idea out. But he says here, it's the first commandment with a promise, and the promise there is stated in verse 3, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Now, if you were to look at the, 
the actual statements of the fifth commandment it will say that you may live long in the land uh, so it was tied to the land promise um, you could see this in Deuteronomy 27 verse 16 Where there are uh, blessings and curses, they're supposed to, when they enter into the land, half the tribes are supposed to go up on Mount Ebal, and they're supposed to pronounce uh, the curses. And one of them says in verse 16, 27 verse 16, Cursed is the one who treats his father or his mother with contempt, and all the people shall say, Amen. Now, to be cursed in that idea is to be cut off. You would, if you were cursed, you were cut off from your people. You were cut off from the land. You were, uh, and we'll see in the other cases, um, executed. <laughs> uh, you were, if, if you had disobedient children in the Old Covenant, you could stone them uh, for their disobedience. Um, now, we're not talking like, I don't want to clean up my room. It's more, a little more deeper than that. But, um, you know, unruly children were... Uh, it was considered very, very serious matter. Proverbs 20, verse 20, also looks into this. Why well, you say I'm going to get like little sticky? That's probably because Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So the same thing in Proverbs 20, verse 20. Whoever curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in deep darkness. Okay, that's a metaphor. <laughs> We're not talking about he's going to walk around with a, with a lamp and someone's going to come and go and blow it out. No, he means you will be cut off from the land. <laughs> you will be put out. <laughs> um, so a, a well-ordered family in which children obey their parents was foundational to a well-ordered covenant community. As Byron said, if you're an unruly child and you're not disciplined, you're going to be an unruly adult, right? Many Proverbs talk about that too. You know, children, you know, that's why it says, if you love your child, right, you will not spare the rod. You know, now we think about that, right, in our culture, and we think, oh, well, you don't want to spank your children. You, you, if you love them, you're not going to hit them. Well, no. If you love them, you will discipline them. <laughs> you will use the rod if you, you know, it's not abuse. We're talking about discipline in a way that brings them up, that teaches them that you cannot um, do certain things and behave a certain way. Now, just a quick comment on the idea of land versus earth, because again, if you were to look at Exodus 20, verse 12, or Deuteronomy 5, verse 16, it would say, uh, honor your father and mother that, mother that it may be well with you and you may live long in the land. Here Paul says you may uh, live long on the earth. I think uh, this is the idea of the difference between the Old Covenant and New Covenant. The Old Covenant was tied to the land of Canaan. The New Covenant expands this to the whole earth, the promised land, in a sense, pointing to the new heavens and the new earth. But here, uh, in the Old Covenant, there were severe, and we mentioned this, there were severe penalties for disobedient children who disrespected their parents. Now, we look at that and say, this is harsh. Our sensibilities today, I don't mean us here in this church. When I say we, I'm talking about the collective we in society today. We look at that and say, that's harsh. That's harsh treatment. We, of course, we swing to the other extreme, right? We are now a, a society that believes in personal autonomy as the chief end of man, not the glory of God, 
not worshiping him and enjoying him forever. No, personal autonomy is the chief end, which is no wonder that commands here to, for children to obey their parents in the Lord seem archaic. A well-ordered community begins in the home. A well-ordered community begins in the home. The home is the basic unit of society. It is the family. It is not the individual. The individual is not the basic unit. Again, this seems very anti-American, where we are like individual rights, individual autonomy, individual this, me, myself, and I. No, the family is the basic unit of society, which is why marriage is not a social construct. Marriage is something God instituted at the very beginning of creation in order to create a well-ordered society. Husband, wife, children, together in a family, that is the basic unit of society. So now Paul turns in verse 4. What's the parent's role? Well, the parents are to nurture. They are to nurture. So children are to obey. Parents are to nurture. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now, it's interesting, because where he says here, children obey your parents, he turns and speaks specifically to fathers. And I looked up the word in the Greek. It's the word pater, which is father. Uh, does this mean that mothers can provoke their children to anger? <laughs> no. Uh, one translation, I believe it's the NIV, has a footnote that says parents. But it's looking at, the, again, at the family structure and seeing the father as the head of the household. So it, even though both parents are to not provoke their children, the father is the one in the role of ultimate responsibility. So this command applies to both parents, but fathers bear ultimate responsibility. And the, and the command here, like he, we've seen in Ephesians 4 and other places, is double-barreled. So you've got a negative aspect to it, and you've got a positive aspect to it. So the negative aspect is fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Do not provoke. That word there means to rouse to wrath, to exasperate, to anger. Do not provoke your children to wrath. So in your disciplining of your children, do not do so in a way that creates anger or resentment or exasperation or wrath. Well, how do you do that? Well, I, just speaking from my own experience, uh, one way to do that is to be inconsistent in how you apply discipline and inconsistent in how you uh, enforce rules, right? You know, if you say, um, you know, if you... If you don't do this, you're going to get this. And then you, you don't do that consistently. Or this is one that trips me up. I, I've I heard, well, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus here, but uh, no one here. Uh, but you know, I'm going to throw them under the bus. They don't listen to me anyway. <laughs> my daughter and son-in-law, okay, because they're the only ones in my family with kids. I, I could hear them in frustration because some, you know, raising a three-year-old is tough. Right? Raising a three-year-old with a one-year-old just adds to the, to, the, to the difficulty factor. And Noah is a three-year-old. I mean, he is, he is a three-year-old through and through, so he acts like a three-year-old, which means he throws tantrums, which means he fusses. And in frustration, it's like, if you don't listen to me, I'm going to throw away all your toys. 
Okay, you're not going to throw away all the toys. Okay, I'm sorry. It's like, and if he doesn't listen, then you better follow through with that, or else he's going to get in his little brain. Oh, like, mom says that, but she doesn't really mean it. Okay, which means I can I can push a little further. So that's the kind of thing. That, that's what exasperates a child. And then, you know, so then you you you. Don't punish him for something really serious, but then you overpunish him for something somewhat minor. That exasperates a child. That provokes them to anger. King David was a good example. King David, yeah, a man after God's own heart. And I've said this before on other occasions. A horrible dad. <laughs> he was not. He would not have been father of the year. I'm sorry. He would not have been father of the year, right? You know, his his oldest son rapes his sister. His, his younger son uh, takes it out on his brother. Uh, David doesn't discipline the older son. And then he exiles the younger son <laughs> when he takes justice into his own hands. That and what did that do? Exactly. It provoked Absalom to anger. And it led to Absalom leading a revolt. And then at the end, he cries over Absalom. Oh, Absalom, Absalom. Anyway, so that's the negative command. Do not provoke them to anger. What's the positive command? Bring them up to nourish, to, to maturity, to nurture, to raise, to feed. I think the word literally means to feed. To nourish them. To nourish them. Um, as with husbands, fathers are to lead in a way that promotes the well-being of the child. They are to lead in a way that leads to the child's flourishing. And that is done through discipline, negatively, it is done positively through instruction, through uh, bringing them up to maturity. And again, this promotes well-being in the child. So it's not obey me so I can have a moment of peace. <laughs> it's obey me because it is the right thing to do, because I am trying to train you to be a productive person, a godly person, a godly young man or a godly young woman. And the manner here, raise them up how? In the training and admonition of the Lord. Older translations may say in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, or in the teaching and instruction of the Lord, depending on what your translation may say. Fathers are to bring them up in the training. That, that word paideia, we get, uh, you know, pedagogy, training, teaching. So it's the training and education of the child. Admonition is instruction and warning. And of course, this is the not just... You know, like Mr. Spock's, Dr. Spock's, uh, you know, manual of child. Is that too old? Is that too old of a reference? Uh, it's not the training and admonition of the world, right? It's not the training and admonition of the lessons you find on Sesame Street or whatever other children's program that you watch. It is in training and admonition of the Lord. The Word is vital in this. The word of God plays a vital role in your training of your children. Again, flipping over to Colossians 3. Verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So that's, you know, that's the negative part of that command. But you can look at various Proverbs on this. So the first one would be Proverbs 13, verse 24. I mentioned this earlier. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Or another one that's very popular that we like to quote, 
mistakenly as a promise, but this is a principle. Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. What is the way he should go? Well, it's the way of the Lord, right? Psalm 119, uh, verse 9, how shall a young man keep his way? By keeping it according to the law of the Lord. Lord, I've hid your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. This is what the Israelites were commanded to do when they came into the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, the famous Shema passage, where you've got this great confession of faith that uh, that Moses speaks to the people. And this is right after the Ten Commandments are given. And he says, Hear, Shema, Ya Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command to you today shall be in your heart. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your heart of your house and on your gates. But more importantly, the verse there, 7, is the one I'm thinking of there. Train them. You shall teach these things diligently to your children. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Children are not a burden. They are a blessing. We live in a society where children are seen more as a burden, where children are seen as an impediment to living my best life now. Children are a blessing, Psalm 127, right? Uh, Verses 1 and 2 talk about the Lord building the house. But verse 3, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. You want to talk about taking over the world, taking over the culture? Have children. Raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Have lots of them. (laughs) Teach them to have lots of kids. And raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You're going to have, you don't need to take, you don't need to take over the reins of government to have a Christian nation. You want a Christian nation? Raise up an army of children unto the Lord. Teach them, train them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, prayer, of course, is essential. There are no guarantees in parenting. Raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is not a cookbook where if you do A, B, and C, D is going to follow. It is, it is in, the, in this sense, it is uh, principles. Put, put it this way. Uh, do you think your children have a better chance of being raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord if you train them up the right way or if you just kind of let it go to osmosis? <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, no one is born a Christian, but they can be raised in a Christian household. They can be nurtured and trained in the way they should go. And as the Proverbs say, when he is old, he will not depart from it. So just as there were severe penalties in the Old Covenant for disobedience, uh, for disobedient children, there are many Old Testament exhortations for parents to train their children. If autonomy has ruined obedient children, abdication has ruined Christian parenting. What do I mean by abdication? Well, 
A lot of things. <laughs> a lot of things. Uh, raising your children by plopping them in front of a TV and popping in a, you know, whatever's on public television or whatever's on Saturday morning cartoons. Um, I, I hesitate to use this as a platform to speak out against uh, social issues, but um, let's face it, the public school system in general is not what it was when we were younger. Um, you, you, we are living in a society that values the culture of death. And by that I mean you've got abortion, which just kills children in the womb. You've got uh, the emphasis on uh, no-fault divorce, which destroys marriages, which destroys families, which produces no children. So ultimately it's a culture of death. Uh, you've got uh, a culture that, just, that loves euthanasia, so you kill the old people so that they can no longer impart their wisdom onto those who are young. We've got a culture of death. And because people in the culture typically are not producing children at a rate that you would think is normal, well, they need your children. So what are they going to do? Well, you build government schools that indoctrinate your children in their way of thinking. Now again, I don't remember it being like that when I was a kid. Uh, I don't think it was that blatant when my kids were kids. Um, it seems to be out in the open now. Uh, I mean, it seems to be they're not hiding the ball anymore. Uh, and I think COVID, for all its ills, uh, was at least that much a blessing in disguise because it exposed this. It exposed this. It's the reason why you had the governor change in West, in not West Virginia, in Virginia, because he ran on a platform of uh, parents, you know, you need to watch out what they're doing to your kids in the schools. And he was elected. So anyway, public rant over. Autonomy ruins obedient children. Abdication has ruined Christian parenting. We need to be involved. And again, I, I say that I know we've all, most of us have already raised our children. Um, but um, these are things that you can continue to impress on your adult children so that they make sure that their children are also um, raised in the training and admonition of the Lord. All right, let's move on to slaves because I need... Oh, you have a question. Yeah, um, it's a little along the line of but in scripture, the only place that I can think of where actually a child spoke was Christ even in the temple. Is there any other instances in the Bible where a child actually... Samuel, baby Samuel, well, not baby, he was young, young boy Samuel, speaking to Eli. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure there are others. Uh, I don't know how old. I guess I'm guessing Isaac, when he was being sacrificed, was about 13. Close enough, maybe younger. Oh, you think it was... Okay. Yeah. Um, Samuel. Then I'll give you Samuel. Yeah. I thought coming to my head about you know, where did children actually speak in the <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean I know there's an instance in the negative sense there was when uh, Elijah the prophet was out oh. that came out and, and were mocking him. Oh you mean Elisha. Okay, Elisha. Yeah. Came out and they're mocking yeah. him and uh, Barris came out of the wood later, so Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, that, that's one that, that's one that uh, uh, pleases the unbeliever. Oh, yeah, it's such a lovely story. <laughs> uh, and then turns other people into knots trying to defend it. Uh, just, just let it speak. Um, yeah, I, was, uh, I had a thought in mind, but now it, is, it escapes. So let me, let me move on. <laughs> uh, let's move on to slaves or bond servants in verses 5 through 8. Uh, so here Paul now turns his attention. He's left the immediate family. Now he's moving on to the extended uh, household here with servants or bond servants or slaves. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, uh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ. Um, so here, um, now the word there, bond servant, um, personally, I think English translations use the word bond servant because of the fact that slave has such a negative connotation in the English language because of American slavery. The word there is doulos. Paul uses it often to speak of himself in reference to his position before Christ. I am a slave of Christ. I'm a servant of Christ. Sometimes you'll see a bond servant of Christ, but he's a slave. All right? he, is, he, he says, I'm a slave of Christ. So the word there means a slave, a bondman, a servant. Now, I, I talked about this a little bit at the beginning. Uh, the elephant in the room is slavery. Um, again, when you mention slavery in American context, it, it brings up the idea of the African slave trade. Uh, that's not what we're talking about here. That's not the kind of slavery or servant, bond servanthood here that Paul is speaking of. So it's not American chattel slavery. It's not man-stealing. It's not going into a foreign country and robbing them of the, you know, the youngest and the strongest men to bring them to another place to put them into slavery. So what kind of slavery are we talking about? Well, in the first century, there are three basic ways you could be a slave. You could be born in, into a servanthood. If your family, if your parents were servants and you were born in their household, then you would be into a slave class at that point. You could be a slave, you, uh, you could be a slave if a conquering nation came in and took you over and would bring population back to their home country. You would be a slave. Uh, Rome did this all the time. And not only Rome, everybody did it. <laughs> uh, the Jews did it. The Israelites did it. We're going to get to that in a moment. But if you were conquered in war, you would be a slave. Or you could sell yourself into slavery. If you, uh, if you fell into great debt, you couldn't pay the debt off. Well, uh, you, know, you could sell yourself into slavery to pay off the debt. So these are um, common uh, ways or forms of slavery in the first century. Now, the Bible neither condones nor condemns slavery. What the Bible does is it regulates slavery. I'm going to look at a couple of passages here. Uh, first is Exodus. Exodus 21. So Genesis, Exodus. This is, again, right after the giving of the Decalogue and some other commandments as well. But in Exodus chapter 21, Moses says, Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. 
Verse 2, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges, he shall also bring him to the doorpost or to the doorpost, and his uh, master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. And if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. Uh, if she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food he sh or her clothing and her marriage rights. And if he does not do these things, uh, he, if he does not do these three things for her, then he shall go out free without paying money. So what you have here is a regulation of servanthood. Now notice, first of all, it's if you buy a Hebrew servant. Secondly, notice that there's a time limit, right? And the reason of the six years, because in the seventh year would be the year of Jubilee, and they were to release all debts and all people who were uh, slaves would be uh, set free. So you have this regulation. There's another passage in Deuteronomy 15 that talks about the same thing. Um, in Leviticus, I'm not going to spend too much time there because we're starting to run short on time here, but uh, Leviticus 25, um, verses 39 and following, uh, it's pretty much the same thing. Um, it, it's, it's the same kind of commandments there. So the Old Testament regulates this, this uh, institution of slavery or, or servanthood here. Again, this is not a chattel slavery. It is, it is a type of servanthood in which you are either sold because of a debt, and that, that would be, in, in, at least in, in the Hebrew context, that would have been the most common form. Other common forms would be, again, if you were a conquered people. Um, the Gibeonites would be a, a, an example in Joshua, and when they're conquering the Promised Land, the Gibeonites realize that the Israelites are coming in, they're wiping out everybody, so they put on a ruse, and they come in, and they look all disheveled, and they say, we've traveled so far, and we want to be with you, and they say, okay, fine, uh, you'll be our servants, you'll be put to forced labor, and so on and so forth. Now, other passages in the New Testament, like uh, 1 Corinthians 7.21, Paul says, if you can obtain your freedom, do so. Right? Again, it neither condones nor condemns slavery. It's interesting that neither Jesus nor the apostles actually argued for the abolition of slavery. They never said, okay, uh, slavery, this is an evil institution, we need to put a, a stop to it. But it is interesting that abolition is a natural outflow of biblical teaching. Right? The abolition movement in uh, England, uh, led by William Wilberforce, was a natural outflow of the fact that man was created in the image of God. And again, that's in reference to the African slave trade, which is far different than what we're talking about here. And then you've got the case in Philemon, who was a runaway slave, where Paul says, I'm sending him back because he's a runaway slave and he shouldn't have run away, but I'm entreating you, Philemon, that you should release him and treat him as a brother, because he's a brother in the Lord now. Onesimus was the name of the, of the servant. All right, so that's the elephant in the room. 
moving a little faster now. Again, the word to his servants, what are they supposed to do? Again, obedient, be obedient, just as children are to be obedient. It's the same word, to be obedient to their earthly masters or to their masters according to the flesh. That is the literal translation, according to the flesh, their earthly masters. Again, Colossians 3.22 will give you the same thing. Other passages say the same thing. Their obedience is to be with fear and trembling. What does that mean? It means fear and trembling. <laughs> I looked up the words. They literally mean fear and trembling. <laughs> well, what does that mean? Well, it means with respect for who they are. They are it, again, in a slave context, your master had a lot of pull over you. <laughs> If you did not want to incur the wrath of your master, you obeyed. You obeyed. Now, he's going to have a word for masters in a moment, but Paul's treating, he's talking about slaves. Yes, obey them with fear and trembling. Why? Because, well, they're your masters, according to the flesh. According to the flesh. Their obedience is to be with sincerity. That's singleness of mind there. Uh, and again, as unto the Lord. Hear that, right? Again, you're not serving the master because he is worthy, just as parents or children don't obey the parents because they're worthy, or wives submit to the husbands because they're worthy. You do it as unto the Lord, as unto Christ, or in the Lord. Notice, too, their obedience is not to be when the master is looking, so not with eye service or as man-pleasers, not trying to suck up, as you would say in, in common parlance. Uh, no, you do it because you respect and fear the master, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill, doing service as to the Lord. Again, as to the Lord. You are ultimately serving the Lord knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Now again, as I said earlier, this is uh, often taken in the context, or it's contextualized to speak of the employer-employee relationship. That's probably the closest thing we can think of, though oftentimes that's not done in a family or household setting. Um, Maybe on a farm you could see it, see it that way more than you would like in a corporate setting where you're, you, know, you leave home to go uh, to, to work somewhere. But um, as in all relationships, we do our job as unto the Lord. We show, our, we show respect to earthly masters if we're, told, if we're not told to sin. In other words, you obey them uh, as long as they're not telling you to do something that is uh, directly... Uh, contradictory to the word of God. And again, this is another area where personal autonomy has warped uh, uh, things here, right? You know, particularly if you want to go to the employer-employee relationship, right? You know, if, if bosses had more sway 50, 60, 70 years ago, the employee seems to have much more pull uh, today, you know. I, Every now and then on my social media feed, I see these weird little TikTok videos of Gen Zers. By Gen Zers, I'm talking about people just now entering the workforce, 18, 19, 20, you know, 25 or so. And they're crying about having to work 40 hours a week. What? It's so hard. I have no life. And it's like, wait, 40 hours a week? times five, that's 200 hours. Okay, eight hours a day, eight hours of sleep, that's still eight hours a day to yourself. What do you mean you have no time for yourself? And then you got the entire weekend. 
we need a 38. No, stop it. Just stop it. <laughs> I know, I'm sure there's so many Gen Zers who will listen to this later on. Um, finally, masters respect, verse 9. And you masters do the same things. Not obey your slaves. Okay, that's not what he's saying there. All right, he's not saying obey your slaves. What he means there is treat them, your servants, as you would want to be treated. How would you want to be treated? Well, give up threatening. Give up threatening. Don't threaten your servants. Don't threaten your employees. Don't threaten those who are under you. Why? Knowing that your master who is in heaven uh, is also in heaven and there's no partiality with him. God is not a, uh, he, he's not a man pleaser. God does not look at persons. He's not a respecter of persons. He doesn't care if you're a master or a slave, if you're a father or a child, or if you're a husband or a wife. He's going to look at you and treat you accordingly. The true master, Jesus, is in heaven. He sees how you treat your servants. He shows no partiality. And I think much can be said of a person in how he or she treats people who are under them in a position of submission. I really do. Whether it's husbands, fathers, masters. And again, consider the example of Jesus in chapter 13 of John's Gospel. What did he do? He bent down and washed their feet. And he said, you call me master and teacher, and rightly so. Now, look what I'm doing for you. I am doing what a servant would do. I'm leading by example, by washing your feet. And he says, go and do likewise. So, so we bring this to a rather rapid close now. Uh, godly households should reflect the order that God has worked into creation, whether that's between husbands and wives, parents and children, or masters and slaves. Sin, unfortunately, has corrupted all of our relationships. Wives and children and slaves want to shake off the yoke of submission. Husbands, parents, and masters want to subject them and keep them under submission. So sin permeates all of our relationships, whether whatever role you happen to find yourself in. But that's the thing here. Paul is giving these commands after he's already given you the gospel, which is in the first three chapters. And he's like, gospel, the gospel transforms all of these relationships and restores them to their proper function. So then leaders lead by showing servant leadership in their, in their relationships. The followers show godly submission as unto the Lord. That's the proper function. That's how the relationships should go. And again, this is all an outflow of the worthy walk. Uh, the one who has been called by Christ uh, to, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. You have been chosen. You've been redeemed. You've been sealed by the Spirit. You are made alive in Christ. How does that look like in a family relationship? If you're in a position of leadership, whether that's husband, parent, or master, you show servant leadership. If that's in a position of, a, of, of submission, then you show godly submission as unto the Lord. And Jesus Christ is the perfect example of both, right? He showed servant leadership to his disciples. He washed their dirty feet. He showed godly submission unto the Father. He said, I have to be about the will of my Father. He sent me into the world, the world to do his work. So really, our worthy walk is, in a sense, then, just an imitation of Christ in the power of the Spirit. So I'll stop here, because I'm at time. Uh, two weeks 
in two weeks. So that's the 18th. The armor of God. 